Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Ephesians. Enjoy the message. All right, if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Ephesians. Um, The text will be on the screen behind me, so um, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can just read along. So we're busy preaching through this amazing letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and um, it is a, a, a wonderful city, a complex city. It's a pagan city in many ways, and remember we've been saying at the heart of the city, which is in modern-day Turkey, you can go there today. Some friends of ours have just been there on holiday, and they got to see this ruined city, this ancient city of Ephesus, and at the heart of the city was a temple, this temple called Artemis, the temple of Artemis, and in the temple was a a, a goddess, a statue, an idol to the goddess Diana, which was the god of fertility. And so this really shaped the city. The city was a pagan city. It was full of all sorts of witchcraft, but essentially the idol of the city was sex, and uh, and not not much unlike our modern Western culture today that uh, is completely given over to the sexual revolution. And so Paul writes this letter to this church to help shape the church and to address the issues of the church. And firstly, he's celebrating. He's celebrating in the opening chapters this great work of salvation that people from this city, this complex pagan city, have turned to Christ. And he explains how that happened. And so he moves. And our theme of the series has been moving from sit, who we are in Christ, our position, our identity. We are seated with Christ to now walking with Christ. So sit, walk, and then stand. And the book ends with us standing together and standing against certain things. And so that's what's framing our movement. Now, as we get to chapter 4, there is this important transition in the book, how he moves from what we call doctrine, who we are in Christ, to duty, how we live for Christ. And this is an important thing for us to understand because we want to live for Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian is living for Christ, the duty. What do, we, what do I need to do in order to be a Christian? And that's a very important question, but it's actually the second question. The first question is, who are we? Who are we? What is our new identity? And what has God done in order to shape a new people? And if we get those two things wrong, we can end up living a life of tyranny, the tyranny of performance, where we feel like we need to perform in order to earn God's favor and earn God's blessing. But the gospel reverses that performance mentality. The gospel tells us, no, we're accepted in Christ because of what God has done in Christ. So God performs. The performance comes from God's side. God performs in sending his son Jesus. And on the basis of Christ's work, on the basis of Christ's performance, we are accepted. And then the second question is, What do I need to do? And so that order is really important. It's really liberating. In fact, it's the exact opposite of how our world operates. The world operates on the opposite system. You need to first perform before I accept you. What are you going to do for me? What can you give me? And then if you perform well, then I might like you. I might accept you. I might take you in. and You might be beneficial to my cause or to my business or whatever it might be. So the gospel reverses this whole thing. So we've seen Paul teaching the the Ephesian church. We've seen Paul 
praying for the Ephesian church, but let's not forget where he's teaching from. He's not teaching from a pulpit. He's not praying from his bedside table. He is praying and teaching from prison, remember? He's in prison. He's been imprisoned. And so he's taught them and he's prayed for them. And now as we get to chapter 4, he is urging them. There's this word, I urge you. In other words, I'm compelling you. I'm pleading with you. So let's read our text and we'll get the gist of what he's urging them to do. What he's appealing that they might do. Verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. For I therefore... So again, Paul is referencing everything that he's previously said. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Again, remember, he's not a prisoner of Rome. So although he has chains around him, he feels that the call of the gospel, he's bound to the gospel. He's not bound to his circumstances. Isn't that incredible? If you've missed this point over the last few Sundays, I want to say it again for those who haven't been with us. Paul is in a Roman prison. He's he's subject to Caesar, but he doesn't see himself as subject to his circumstances. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. God is in control of my circumstances. A prisoner for the Lord. And then he says this, I urge you to walk, there's our word, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying, He ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is an introductory section which continues and so as we end here in verse 10 Paul's thoughts continue but we don't have time to continue on so we'll deal with the rest next Sunday but I want to frame this message under three specific headings as we look at this passage firstly we're going to talk about the mandate what is he urging us for the mandate secondly the manner in which we are to walk and then thirdly the model what is the motivation for how we are to walk out this new life. So number one, the mandate. What is he saying? Well, in verse one, he is reflecting on our common calling. Our common calling. Now, he doesn't use the word common in the sense that it's like something to be thrown away. No, no, it's that we hold it all together. We have it in common. And so he says here in verse one, 
We are to walk. He's urging us. So there's a, there's a real sense of importance here. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, a couple of things. Firstly, walking worthy or the worthy walk does not mean, first of all, that we are trying to earn something. We're not trying to earn something. The worth that we're after here is not us trying to be worthy. It's not something we're trying to earn. We're not trying to earn God's acceptance. And so that's why I spoke about the order in the beginning. We are not trying to present ourselves as worthy. What it means is that we are, he's urging us to, to, to be so amazed, so blown away by the fact of our calling, the reality of our already acceptance, that we would live worthy of that calling. So the focus is not on our worth. The focus is on the worth of the calling. This is really important. In other words, what he's emphasizing here is both the privilege and the purpose of being a Christian. The Christian calling, he is saying, is far greater than any other office. Even the the privilege of, of the office of president, for example. You see, because being, being a president is a calling from man, isn't it? But being a Christian is a calling from God. And so the worth of this calling outstrips the worth of the office of the president of a nation. No matter how great the nation is, this calling, in, in Paul's mind, he is saying to us, understand the worth of this calling. Our calling is from God. God called you. God sought you out. God sent his son. And through his son, he called you by his spirit to be adopted. Chapter 1. Adopted as sons and daughters by his grace. Our calling, he's saying, is an eternal sonship. You see, presidents last for maybe a few decades, but our calling lasts forever and ever and ever. And so we are to understand this calling, the worth of the calling. And he references, he says, therefore, Consider your calling. Remember your calling in chapters 1 through, through 3. He, he, he unpacks this calling. Firstly, we were alienated from God, remember, because of our sin. We were separated from God. But God did something. He sent his son to reconcile us. And so we are reconciled to God by grace. But then we're not only were we alienated from God, but we were also alienated from God's people. And so not only does he restore this vertical relationship, but he restores horizontal relationships. And we are brought into the story of God throughout the Old Testament. We, the, literally, the text tells us we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and now we're included. We've been grafted in. We are now one with God's covenant people. 
And so Paul is reflecting on this calling, and he wants, to, he wants us to see the worth of it, the value of it. Because if we value God's calling upon our lives, then we will walk in a manner worthy of that calling. We would walk it out. In other words, when we feel, when we prize, when we treasure this grace that we've been given, this amazing, undeserved grace, it will constrain us. It will constrain us to live a life worthy of that calling. Now, there are some things that Paul highlights now that brings this calling into disrepute. That brings the the, the grace that we've received, it brings it into a space of disgrace. When we behave, when we don't walk worthy of this calling, we bring our calling into disrepute. And some of the things he's going to highlight are disunity, when the church is not unified, when there's a disunity in the church, it brings our calling into disrepute because part of our calling is to be one, to be one. The other aspect he's going to highlight is prejudice. When we begin to compare ourselves with one another and we begin to put people on pedestals or we undermine certain people, certain people groups, certain ethnic groups. Prejudice is a disgrace upon our calling. Why? Because our calling is to be one in Christ, whether you are black or white or English or Afrikaans or whatever your background, we are one in Christ. And so to undermine that is a disgrace to the grace we've received. So there's disunity, there's prejudice, and thirdly, There's worldliness. Worldliness. When we live like the world, we bring our calling into disrepute. And so he speaks to these three areas. In verse 3, look at this. This is part of our calling. He's saying you are called to unity. Verse 3. We should be eager, he says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's unity. That's the first thing. Secondly, we are called not just to unity, but to diversity. Because look what he says in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. So he moves from all of us to now each of us. This is remarkable what he's doing. Because sometimes we think that in order to be unified, we need to lose our distinctives. And he's saying, no, 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 don't lose your distinctives. Because diversity can enhance unity. It's the opposite of how the world thinks. The world thinks, if you're going to be unified, then we all need to think the same, and we all need to look the same, and we all need to act the same. And Paul is saying, no, no, that's not how the gospel works. How the gospel works is you can be diverse. In fact, diversity is beautiful. Diverse people with diverse gifts and diverse personalities and diverse ethnicities. And the wonder of this gospel is that in Christ, all of this diversity can be unified. It's a powerful message. But when we undermine it, it brings our calling into disrepute. 
So he says in verse 7, but grace was given not just to unify us, but it was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he goes on and he develops this thought. We don't have time to go into it. Next week we will. He develops this thought of how we've all been gifted. And if we all have our gifts and we play our roles in our diversity, we can bless the body. So we are called to unity. Let's not undermine our unity. We are called to diversity. Let's not play down diversity. Diversity is a beautiful thing. And then thirdly, we are called to purity. Unity, diversity, purity. It's not in our, in our verses today, but it goes on. In the rest of chapter 4, we read this and we'll get to it in coming weeks. Verse 22, where Paul says on the theme of this thought, he says to us, put off your old self. He's addressing worldliness. So he addresses unity, he addresses diversity, he addresses worldliness, purity. When we, when we don't put off the old way, we bring our calling into disrepute. Put off your old self, he says, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's, this is your old way. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Purity. In other words, look what he says. Put on the new self, your new identity, which is created in the likeness of God. Now, that is a key phrase which we're going to come back to. And so part of this worthy calling, part of walking the, 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 the walk that we need to walk is that we walk in unity, we walk in diversity, and we walk in purity. Now, how are we to do that? And that's the second point, the manner. How are we to do that? And we need to remember that he's writing to a very diverse church. These were previously people that hated one another. Culturally, they were at the opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got Jews with all their culture and religious practice, and you've got pagans on the other hand with all of their religious practices and ways and manners of life. And these two cultures surely should be clashing. Surely they should not feel like family. And Paul is saying, yes, you can. And yes, you should. And here's why. Because look at this. Not only do we have a common calling, but we are called to a common care. Verse 2 and 3. Walk, he says, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, firstly, notice this, that we don't create the unity. The unity already exists because it's a unity in the Spirit. You see, when we, when we become Christians, we become family. We are joined to the body of Christ. Every single one of us, by faith in Christ, are joined to the body, and so we become family. And so the call upon the church in order to walk worthy is we are to maintain. This is a maintenance project. We are to maintain our unity. In other words, it exists in Christ. 
Again, remember, this is wonderful because the work is done. We get to maintain the finished work. Because we can't create unity. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can bring different cultures together. Only Christ can bring people from all sorts of tribes and and factions and, 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 and people who once hated each other. Bring them together and create unity. And we're called to maintain that unity. It's the reference to him ascending and descending at the end there, which is a quote from the Psalms. And the reference is to simply Jesus coming from heaven to earth in his incarnation. Jesus comes. He descends to us. He comes to us to create a people. And through coming to earth, through descending and then ascending, He creates a new people. He creates a unified body. So how do we maintain this unity? Well, he gives it to us in two stages. Firstly, with all humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. These are the marks of Christianity. These are the marks of love. What does love look like? It looks like this. It looks like humility and gentleness. In other words, I think what he's arguing here is that the knowledge of this great calling, the knowledge of the grace that you've received should make you feel small, humble, and thankful. You see, Christians are to think humbly of themselves and highly of Christ. And when we think humbly of ourselves and highly of Christ, imagine a community that does that together. There's no room for infighting. There's no room for culture clash. Charles Hodge, one of the commentators on this passage, he says this regarding the Christian humility. The doctrines of grace, which is our core, we've been called by grace. The doctrines of grace humble a man without degrading him. And exalt a man without inflating him. I think that's just a great, great definition of humility. And so the focus here, church, is on how does a diverse group in Ephesus and in Port Elizabeth today, how does a diverse group of imperfect people, let's just double up on the problems here. Firstly, we're a diverse group. Secondly, we're an imperfect people. How does a diverse, imperfect people maintain a common care for one another? So the question we're asking is, how can you keep on caring for that person in your church that you don't like? How do we keep unity amongst ourselves when that person really irritates you? Or they let you down? How do you maintain unity with them instead of being off or cold towards them? The only way is to remember that you are also a sinner, undeserving of grace. Because you're not better than them. You're no better than them. In fact, if someone thinks ill of you, Do not be angry with them, for you are far worse than they think. 
Let me say that again. If someone thinks badly of you, do not be angry with them, for you are far worse than they know or think. You see, when we humble ourselves and we have a humble estimation of ourselves and we realize that all that we have comes by grace, this gracious calling of forgiveness that we've received, then we're able to bear with one another, as the text says. See, when we clothe ourselves in humility and gentleness and we get the right perspective on who we really are, then we can be patient with patience. Bearing with one another in love. In other words, Paul knows this isn't going to be easy. This is a very diverse church he's dealing with. And people don't like each other in the church. But there's a greater calling. There's a higher calling. And the higher calling is we are one in Christ. So the manner is with humility and with gentleness in other words, realize who you are at your, at your best and at your worst, that you're no better than anyone else. And so be patient and bear with one another in love. So that's the manner in which we do it. Now, how do, where's the motivation come from? The motivation comes from the model, which is really the middle part of this passage in verses 4 through 6. And here we see the model. So we've got a common calling and we've got a common care. And we've got this common conviction. And it's this conviction, this common conviction that's going to produce the motivation for how we do this. And here's the conviction. He says, so in light of all of these things that Paul wants us to do, he wants us to walk and be kind and be gentle. He says, there is one body. There's only one. There's only one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I love the, the contrast here. Isn't it incredible? We've got seven ones in this passage. Three of them are referring to the Trinity, the the, the, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. The other four are references to the outworkings of the experience when we're in contact with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We have a faith, a common faith. We have a common hope. We have a common baptism. We have a common calling. And then the contrast between one, 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 and all, 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 all. It's beautiful. The picture here is a picture of this is who your God is. This is who your God is. Your God is one. But at the same time, he's three persons. And also, he is pure. And so here's the genius of what Paul is doing. Paul is calling the church to walk in unity to walk in diversity, and to walk in purity, isn't he? And then he lifts up God and the Christian life, and he says, the God that you worship is one, it's unity, he's three persons, diversity, and he's pure, he's holy. 
So here's the motivation. The motivation is that Christian unity and Christian diversity and Christian purity arises from the fact that the God that we worship is himself unified, diverse, and pure. This is the motivation. We are called to be like him. We are called to live like him. And when you are not When you are not doing these things, when you are not living the pure life, when you're in worldliness and you're indulging the flesh, and when you are causing prejudice or you're prejudiced in your heart and you're despising the diversity of cultures and people and nations, and if you are causing disunity, you are acting outside of your calling. And so he lifts up God. He says, look at who God is. Who is the, the only God, the only God, the, the Christian God is this magnificent God who is unified, diverse, and pure. And be like him. Now, I just want to do a little work on this because these verses, verses 4, 5, and 6, are some of the most profoundly Trinitarian verses we have in all of Scripture. And and as Christians, this is the one distinctive that sets us apart from other world religions. It's the most important fundamental area of Christianity, the definition of who is God. Who is God? And, And all other world religions reject the Christian view. And so, for example, in Islam, Islam accuses Christians of believing in three gods. In fact, most of their literature accuse Christians of believing in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Mary. Somehow they got their eyes fixed on the Roman Catholic Church. And that's Islam's view of Christianity. And we say, no, that's not what we believe. It's never been what Christians believe. Judaism similarly has an opinion of Christianity. Judaism and and some of the other minor cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses, those guys that come knocking when they shouldn't, they have a, a distorted view on what we believe. And they make the accusation that Christians believe in three gods. Similar to what the, Islam's, uh, the Muslims accuse us of. They say, no, that, but they get it right. They say that we believe that, that, that uh, in three gods, that, that you got first, the first god is the father, and the second god is the son, and the third god is is the Holy Spirit. And we say, no, that's not what we believe. We believe in one God. In other words, they accuse us of, of polytheism, that we believe in multiple gods. And Christians believe in monotheism. We are a monotheistic faith. We believe in one God. The text is clear. Verse 6, one God. And many other texts. We believe in one God, and this is the beauty of the Trinity. However, this one God that we believe in has revealed himself in three persons, not three gods. So we're not contradicting ourselves. If we said we believe in one God and three gods, that would be a contradiction. We believe in one God in three persons. 
Now, this is incredibly important, not just theologically, but philosophically, because herein lies the crux of how we can be a unified and diverse people. Because our very God that we worship is both unified, one, and diverse, three. There is mystery there, yes. Contradiction, no. Here's why. So to be very clear, we believe in one God who has revealed himself to us in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so there is diversity in the God that we worship. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. They don't just collapse they don't just collapse into one another. They are distinct persons, three persons distinct from each other, but they are one God. Now, let me quote to you from John Piper because he just does this so well. He says this, In order for something to be contradictory, it must violate the law of non-contradiction. This law states that A cannot be both A, what is, what it is, and non-A, what it is not. It can't be both of those. It can't be what it is and what it is not. Here it is, at the same time and in the same relationship. In other words, you have contradicted yourself if you affirm and deny the same statement. For example, if I say that the moon is made entirely of cheese, but then also say that the moon is not made entirely of cheese, I have contradicted myself. He goes on. He says, carrying this concept over to the Trinity, it is not a contradiction for God to be both three and one. Here it is. Because he is not three and one in the same way. He is three in a different way than he is one. This is very important. God is one and three at the same time, but not in the same way. I found that really helpful. So what's the application? The application is that God is the model for the worthy walk that we're called to walk. God is both unified, one, diverse, three persons, and pure. What a beautiful vision. We are called to be like him. Now, again, I just want to say a, a few more things philosophically on this, because I think most cultures and most religions would agree that of all of the moral ethics in the world, love has to be the highest moral ethic. I think every human being would agree that of all the ethics, love should be the highest ethic. And therefore, if there is a God, if there is a God at his core, he must be a God of love. Because love is the ultimate virtue in life. And here's what I want to submit to you, that in Christianity... And it's not in any of the other religious positions. In Christianity, 
the doctrine of the Trinity gives evidence that the Christian God is the only true God because he is one and three at the same time, but not in the same way. And what that means is he is a divine community. And without community, you can't have love. Because if you are one, how can there be love? Because love needs someone else for it to be given to. And so all other religious positions don't have this dynamic, powerful reality. Because a Unitarian God, a, a God who is one and only one and doesn't have three persons, can be all-powerful, but how can he be loving? Because there's no one to love. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, if God is unipersonal, only one person, then until God created other beings, there was no love. Since love is something that one person has for another. If he was just one person, he couldn't have been loving for all eternity. However, if God is triune, three persons, then loving relationships in community are the great fountain at the center of reality. This is what distinguishes Christianity from all other religious positions. That our God is a communal God. He didn't have to create in order to, to, to express love. He had no need. There was love within the divine persons of the Godhead. The Father loved the Son and the Son loved the Spirit and the Spirit loved. And, and that was how it was from all eternity. And they shared that love with us. They had no need to create in order to love. They shared that love with us. And here's the implication. We get to share that love with one another. We get to follow his example. He's the model. Guys, I want to suggest to you that we live in a diverse society, in a society where we have cultures that are clashing. We have issues between genders. We have violence issues that are off the charts. We have problems. We have a complex society. And as individuals, we've had some great individuals. We've had Nelson Mandela. We've had heart surgeons who've become world famous. We've, we've produced some superstars. But I want to suggest to you, how are we going to produce a culture? How are we going to produce a society that is unified and diverse? And the answer is not by getting rid of diversity. We can't do that. Because diversity is beautiful. The only way we can produce a society that is unified, diverse, and pure is by returning to God. Our nation, our people, we, the church, need to come back to God and live under his lordship and enter into his fellowship. Look, at, look what happened right in the beginning. I'm almost done. Look what happens right in the beginning. Of the story of redemption. In Genesis 1 verse 26. We read this. Then God said. Then God said. Let us. Make man. In our image. Notice the plurals. 
God is speaking, and God doesn't say, I'm going to make man in my image. No, no, he says, let us. Why? Because from all eternity, God, the only God, has been a God of love because he's, he's a plural. There's three persons there. Let us make man in our image, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's share this love. Let's share this community. Have you ever wondered why people, human beings, long for relationship? We are relational people because we are made in the image of God, who from all eternity was a relationship of three divine persons in love, all-powerful and all-loving. No other faith position has this truth. They may have an all-powerful God, but they've never had an all-loving God from all eternity. And so the invitation to us, when he says in verses 4 through 6, all of these ones, one God, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one body, one spirit, is come back. And enter the fellowship, enter the divine community. It's an invitation to worship this God, this incredible God who is one and three persons. And that becomes the motivation for how we live unified and diverse and pure lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious vision. We thank you that you are the only true God. There is no other God besides you. Lord, we thank you for this model of perfection. This beautiful example of unity and diversity and purity. And that's what you're calling us to, Lord to walk worthy of this high calling. And we are called to be like God. And Lord, we can do it. We do it through worship and through remembering who we once were apart from Christ. And acknowledging that in Christ, we are one. One people. Yes, there's complexity. Yes, there's challenge. But in Christ, we are one. And all of our diversity, all of our differences, find their place. Find their place in you, Jesus. So I pray, Lord, for us. I pray that we would be a loving community. A worshiping community, yes. But a loving community. A community that is unified and diverse and pure. Pursuing you, Lord. Thank you for this incredible vision. Lord, we just want to thank you for who you are. And thank you for sharing your love with us. Thank you that we can enter into the community of Father, Son, and Spirit. We get to participate. 
We get to join in the fellowship of the Godhead. We get to join in this fellowship. And may it spill over, Lord. I pray it would spill over into our everyday relationships. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.